0: The Chapel Council meets the elders of Wiser Lake Chapel together to discuss and resolve issues facing our church, whatever they might be. Most of you have never sat through one of those meetings. I will tell you, it's a sweet time as godly elders who love the Lord and love this body work together to try to make things better here. You'll be happy to know that your elders don't fight. When they meet, we listen to one another. We think hard. We try to figure out what needs to be done. But by the time we're finished, after discussing many issues, there is this poignant moment when we all realize we're in over our head. We don't have the wisdom or the power to fix everything. We're frankly cast upon the mercy of our Lord. And so we always wrap up our evening by just laying before the Lord all the things we've been talking about, asking him. I tell you that because our text raises the kind of issues we deal with as a council, the kind of issues you and I deal with as individuals, the need to do what god tells us to do but the fact that we often find ourselves powerless to know how to do it and the challenge to trust the lord to enable us to do what seems often to be impossible that's the kind of thing we're going to talk about this morning let me read the text Matthew 17, verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. "O unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move nothing will be impossible for you when they came together in galilee he said to them the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men they will kill him and on the third day he will be raised to life and the disciples were filled with grief we've talked about that last uh, paragraph a number of times and we will some more so our focus is on the rest of the first part of that text down through verse Uh, 21, mostly, today. Let me boil this down to three simple truths. The first is this. God expects us to do what he says. God expects us to do what he says. Here we have what seems like an absolutely absurd situation. While Jesus was gone up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John the rest of his disciples faced what seemed impossible. A boy suffering from terrible, destructive seizures brought to the disciples by his father seeking healing for his son. Well, they tried, but they were not successful. Of course they weren't. We would probably think, why did they even try? You can't do that. But then when Jesus returned, he was upset at them for their failure. So, how can we explain these things? The disciples trying to do the impossible and Jesus getting upset when they failed. It sounds absurd. Well, to make sense out of it, we have only to turn back and to think back to Matthew chapter 10. Listen to what we read there, Matthew 10, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 disciples. He names them all. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons freely you have received. Freely give. Oh. That puts it in a different light. What did these disciples think they were doing? They were doing what they had been told to do. And why did Jesus get upset? Because they didn't do it. God expects us to do what he tells us. Now, this, the truth, applies to all of us as well. God expects us to do what he told us to do. We have no reason to believe that God expects us to do miraculous healings like he sent the 12 to do. He didn't send me to do that. He didn't send you to do that. But there are plenty of other things which we readily know to be his will. He commands us to repent and follow Christ he commands us to not sin, to walk in holiness. He commands us to bear testimony of his grace in the gospel. He commands us to meet together and be- work to build his church. He commands husbands to love their wives. He commands wives to respect their husbands. He expects us to make our marriages work. And he commands us to raise our children to be faithful To the Lord. Whether those things seem possible or not, God commands them. And He holds us accountable to do His will. That's the first truth. God expects us to do what He says. Second truth we are powerless to do what He says. (laughs) We are powerless to do what He says. Your response to the first point may well be, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't heal the boy. Yeah, that's exactly the point. They couldn't. We all identify with this. The disciples suddenly looked foolish before the crowd, not to mention the disappointment of the boy's father and the despair of this boy who was so tortured by this. And it doesn't take long for us in our Christian life to learn to never let ourselves get in that situation where we try things that are beyond our ability to accomplish them. So we protect ourselves. We mentally reduce our understanding of the will of God down to things we can be sure we can do. In fact, some will blatantly deny the scriptures Deny that God ever told us to do certain things, things that we find impossible. But that's the whole point here. If we are ever to get to the third point where we see how things can be done, we must first completely grasp this second point. In ourselves, we are powerless to do what God says, to please The disciples had to be reminded of their total inability to what Jesus said. And we are not one bit more able to do all the things that God commands us. You think not? Well, specifically, think about the list I just went through. Do you have the power to stop sinning? Do you have the motivation, the diligence, and the perseverance to be holy as God is holy? Do you have the power to change people's hearts with the gospel? Are you sufficient to build Christ's church? Can you change your whole cold heart and make yourself love your wife as Christ loves? Are you really able to cut down your resentment toward your husband? Can you so control your circumstances? to make certain that your children are fully trained to walk in the faith, really you're able to do all those things? I doubt it. In ourselves, we are often powerless to do what God commands us to do. All of God's servants have to learn this before God can use them. Most notably, the Apostle Paul relates his experience as God impressed this truth on him. We read Paul's own account of it in 2 Corinthians 12. Let me read you a few verses. Paul writes, to keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations that God had given him. There was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul writes, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. We get so frustrated when we see what God would have us to do and then feel our inadequacy. So we despair, assuming it can't be done. But folks, our sense of inadequacy is a good thing. We must come to the point, to that point if ever we would be used of God, if ever we would please him. For we, if we are inadequate, if we are adequate and competent and capable to do what God wants, we need no savior. We don't need his spirit. We are self-made men. We are self-sufficient, and that is a damnable doctrine. In ourselves, the truth is we're powerless to please God. Which brings us to our final point, which is really the point of the whole section. By faith, we please God. By faith, we please God. There's a remarkable statement here, troublesome statement, verse twenty. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, it's important that we understand first what Jesus is not saying here. First of all, Jesus is not talking about the excavation business. He's not in the business of moving dirt, nor is that what he called us to do, except for a few people. This is a metaphor. William Barclay explains, when Jesus spoke about removing mountains, he was using a phrase which the Jews knew well. A great teacher who could really expound and interpret the scripture and who could explain and resolve difficulties was regularly known as an uprooter or even a pulverizer Of mountains. To tear up, to uproot, to pulverize mountains were all regular phrases for removing difficulties. Jesus never meant for this to be taken physically and literally. But even beyond the literal misunderstanding, Jesus was also not saying some other things. He was not saying that faith is some secret psychic power that we have. We're not playing psychological games here. It is not proper to speak of the power of faith. No, God has the power. Faith is not our power. There's a lot of that sloppy thinking around. The idea that if you can think it and believe it, you have the power to do it. No, you don't. The idea that you can will a miracle to happen. No, you can't. You're not God. The idea of psychic power is part of pagan mysticism. It's part of godless spiritism. You and I have no supernatural authority to decide what mountain needs moving and then command that God do what we said. You got the dog tail wagging the dog there. So what is this faith that Jesus speaks of? Faith is learning and believing what God has promised and considering it more true than any dissenting point of view. Considered it so true That we will act upon it, though we may not yet know how all the details will work out. That's what we see in the account of Noah. God said it would rain until it flooded the earth. Noah had never seen such a thing in his life, nor had anyone else. And everyone scoffed at the thought that it might happen. But Noah believed what God said. He believed it more than he believed the mockers. He believed it more than he believed his own experience. And so in holy fear, Noah began to build an ark to save his family. There was so much he did not know. But he knew God spoke the truth and he bet his life on it. And so by faith... Noah pleased God and saved his family. Oh, faith is not presupposition. That would be the case if we put ourselves in God's place to determine his will. Men took actions which forced God to perform in order to make it happen. That's what Satan tempted Jesus to do. You remember that? Where... He t- took Jesus up on the t- top of the temple and he challenged Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. And then Satan quoted the scripture, quoted the scripture passage that God would send his angels to, to not let him dash his foot against a stone. And Jesus refused. God didn't tell him to jump off the temple roof. That would have been Jesus' own decision, which would have, in effect, put God on trial to see if God would do what Jesus wanted him to do, to bail him out. That's not faith. That sounds like bold faith. That's presumption. And so, by faith, Jesus pleased the Father. Folks, this walking by faith, not sight, trusting what God promises more than what we see, This is how we live before God from start to finish through our life. In fact, this is how God saves us at the beginning. In his word, he announces that Jesus' death and resurrection is sufficient to save us. And so he calls us to repent of our sins and put our trust in Jesus and follow him. Of course, we know we're not able to change. We've tried that before and it didn't work. But faith believes God's promise more than we believe what we know about ourselves. And so knowing that we have no power to change and not knowing what might sustain us ahead and not knowing where all this might lead us we nonetheless take God at his word and confess our need and abandon our sin and turn around and begin to follow Jesus. And God is pleased with that faith and he calls us his child. But faith is not just how God saves us. Faith is how we continue to live. The world is full of advice and warnings and opportunities The whole world is open to us to make our mark on on history. But there's another voice, the word of God. He tells us what matters to him. He tells us where history is headed. He tells us what will happen to the world. And he calls us to adopt his plans and give ourselves to serve him, not ourselves. Oh, there's so much we don't know. How will we live? Where will we end up? What exactly will it all look like? And yet faith believes God's word more than it believes every other voice. More than even our own desires and our own preferences and our own fears. And so we say yes to him. Yes, Lord, I will serve you anywhere, anytime, doing anything you say. Here I am. And suddenly, a door opens that we've never seen before an opportunity to put feet to our prayers, and, and we say, This is the Lord's doing. And so we act. Not knowing where that might lead, but trusting God. That's what Abraham did, the father of all the faithful. We read about it in Genesis, but we also read about it in Hebrews 11. There we read, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. (laughs) By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And God was pleased with Abraham, with faith that walks in his ways. You see, faith is not some one specific act, one moment in time. Faith is a way of living. It's trusting God when we cannot see more than all the things we do see. It's considering his word to be truer than all the best human speculation. And it is acting on his will when he enables us to understand it. By faith, we can please God. Indeed, Hebrews 11 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So back to our text, why couldn't the disciples heal this demon-possessed boy? Well, we're not told exactly, except that they lacked faith. Faith. What might that mean? Well, they apparently were not acting out of confidence in Christ's commission. They were just doing what they'd become accustomed to doing. Jim Boyce suggests they were approaching the challenge with a formula, expecting that results follow from the mere doing of the work with or without faith. We, this is what we do we go through the motions. And, the outcomes guaranteed. They were not trusting God to overthrow the forces of evil. They were apparently assuming that they had the power to do that themselves. Say the right words, it's done. <clears throat> they may not have even been seeking to bring glory to God, they may have just come to enjoy the public acclaim. What we know for sure is that they faced a mountain of sorts, demonic power, demonic possession, worldly forces of man-centeredness and their own human weaknesses. But they faced them not with faith, resting in the wisdom and power of God, but in some lesser routine to which they had become accustomed. But only by faith in God could these mountains be moved, for only by faith can we please Him. Three things here God expects us to do what He says, and He's made His will quite clear in lots of areas. But we're powerless to do what He says, for we're human and we're sinful, and we're full of self. It is only by faith that we can please God, faith that takes him at his word, that trusts him enough to act on what he says, and that then rests ourself in the consequences of obedience. Pastor Jim Boyce quoted, noted that uh, in 1517, the same year that Martin Luther Nailed his 95 Theses to the wall of the uh, castle church in Wittenberg, the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Raphael Sanzio began painting a picture of Christ's transfiguration. He showed Jesus on the mountain with Peter and James and John and everything is bathed with light. But in the same painting down at the bottom, Raphael shows the other nine disciples trying to cast a demon out of an epileptic boy and failing miserably. The painting contrasts the glory of the transfiguration above with the shame and confusion of the episode with the disciples below. That contrast, folks, is always with us. We who live in the already but not yet Of the kingdom of God. But every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to remove it. We pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus says that when faith becomes a reality, what God has revealed to be His will will be accomplished as His people trust Him for it. We walk by faith, not sight. That means we focus our attention on knowing the will of God and commit ourselves to doing the will of God, regardless of our strength, our resources, or our wisdom, knowing and believing that he will provide all we need to be faithful to him. The only limits placed upon us is our lack of complete knowledge of his will in every situation, and our lack of faith when we do know it. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we talk about walking by faith, and yet the truth is we are so careful because we don't want to look like fools like these disciples did. We're so careful to never step out beyond what we can guarantee what we can understand, what we can control. And the truth is, Father, then we don't take very seriously what you told us to do, and we certainly don't take very seriously our inability to do it, and we don't take very seriously that we need desperately your grace and your strength to ever please you at all. So teach us. Teach us these things. Until we boldly trust you, until we can say, here I am, Lord, for any task, anywhere, at any time, here I am. I'm yours. I trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.